Frank Van Stratton is a performing arts historian, author and former director of the Performing Arts Museum in Melbourne. You've probably read one of the insightful commentaries on the history of a show in a theatre program you purchased. Van Stratton was the first archivist of the Performing Arts Museum, now Performing Arts Collection, at the Arts Centre, and was the director from 1984 until 1993. Between 86 and 2001, he researched and presented ABC Local Radio's Nostalgia segment, broadcast on Melbourne's 774 and the ABC Victorian Regional Network. He has acted as the historical consultant for Graham Murphy's dance musical Tivoli, performed by the Sydney Dance Company. And given his vast knowledge, he has accepted invitations to contribute information to considerable books, speeches, biographies, performance and exhibitions. Van Stratton has served on the board of the National Theatre Melbourne. He has also served on the judging panels of the Green Room Awards and Helpman Awards. He's a patron of the Cinema and Theatre Historical Society and a founding member and committee member of the Victoria Theatres Trust, now the Theatre Heritage Australia. In recognition of his services to the performing arts in Australia, Van Stratton was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1999. Frank's passion for our performing heritage is palpable, and his knowledge is supreme. With an ability to talk at length on any subject to do with the performing arts in Australia, he's the perfect guest on stages. Yes, I do. I can picture it in my memory as if it were yesterday. It was White Horse Inn at Her Majesty's Theatre and my parents thought it would be a good show to introduce me to live theatre. And it was. I was just entranced from the moment it started until it finished. And I came home and made a little set model of the uh, with the revolving stage and so on. And um, uh, ironically, that Madge uh, was the first theatre that I visited, Her Majesty's here in Melbourne, and it's the uh, subject of the current book project, A History of, of Her Majesty's. So it's been part of my life um, ever since I was, I suppose, must have been about seven, that experience. And, after that, I went to, my parents took me to pantomimes. That was an annual feature of, of uh, family entertainment. In Melbourne, the pantomimes were at Christmas, and in Sydney, they were at Easter. The show used to travel up. And Melbourne had pantomimes at Her Majesty's, which were somewhat more decorous than the pantomimes at the Tivoli, which were rough and tumble. And uh, I think I like the typical ones a bit more. Because <laughs> they're rough and dumb. <laughs> there was much more audience participation and they used to throw mini violet crumbles out into the audience and there was always a chance to, uh, you know, cheer the hero and hiss the villain and join in the chorus and so on. And I, I can remember particularly a wonderful principal boy, um, Jenny Howard, she was an English comedian and she excelled in, in uh, principal boy roles. And once you got over that strange British tradition that the uh, leading man was played by a woman and the leading female comic role was played by a man, those shows were just magic. And they had, 
armies of kids in them as well as adults. And uh, I always sort of secretly thought I would love to have been one of those kids because they all seem to have such a wonderful time. Um, I thought you were going to say a panto dame for a minute there. (laughs) But, of course, that convention of the dame feeds into a lot of contemporary work. I mean, you think of Hairspray and and Edna Turnblatt and and certainly um, Mm. Tim Minchin's Matilda. Yeah, and things like Mrs Brown's Boys. Yes, indeed. Typical dame role, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And I I guess you could even cite people like Barry Humphreys with Dame Edna Everidge and um, Artie Jack. Yep. As borrowing from that tradition. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So what was it about live performance that ignited the passion which was to steer the rest of your life, do you think? In a funny way, I think, Peter, it was... Basically, I suppose it was my parents encouraging me. My dad had been a musician in an earlier life and he knew a lot about uh, live theatre and he knew a lot about popular music. And uh, that was all sort of part of the tradition I grew up with uh, at home. But the whole concept of live theatre, I loved the buildings, uh, I loved the traditions, and I loved the ephemeral nature of it, the fact that you were there uh, for this special occasion, it was being presented just for the moment. And you knew that um, uh, there was no way to recapture that moment. That was it. And I also knew I was never, ever going to be a uh, performer because I was inherently very, very shy. And uh, I suppose being interested in the way shows were put together, who put them together, who was in them, the venues they were performing was a vicarious way of being part of it without actually being up on the stage um, doing it. And in Melbourne, we're particularly lucky to have a inventory of very fine historic theatres. I mean, you can't go into Her Majesty's without uh, somehow sensing that this is where Melba sang, where Pavlova danced, Fontaine's been there, the Borovetsky Ballet, all the great All those ghosts. Yeah, Yeah. they're all there. They're all, and of course, the princess has got its own real ghost, or, well, as good an authentic a ghost as you could could wish. And I've spoken to many, many theatre people who've experienced ghosts. I never have, but I'm sure uh, the people that uh, have have been really, uh, really moved by it. Federici. Was, uh, and, and was he an actor that performed at The Princess? He was a... Um, he, was a he was born in Italy and he used the name Federici, but he was actually uh, from an English family. And he made his name in Britain in um, Gilbert and Sullivan. And he came out here as a Gilbert and Sullivan performer in the uh, 19th, late 19th century. And um, he made his debut here in um, in Gordon Sullivan, uh, and he actually sang one performance of the Mikado at Her Majesty's, but he mainly appeared at the Princess. And to extend his repertoire, he got himself cast as Mephistopheles in Faust, uh, and it was a notorious 
enterprise that fast because Nellie Stewart, who had made her name in light opera, she was given the chance to sing Margarita. And they gave um, Federici the chance to sing Mephistopheles. And they programmed it as they would have an operetta. It was not every other night or every third night, it was every night. And it was on the first, the very first night that uh, poor old Fred stood on the trapdoor to go down to the nether regions and uh, had a heart attack on the way and was dying when the stagehands got him out of the trapdoor mechanism. And it was ill luck for poor old Nelly because she ruined her singing voice by singing Margarita. Uh, I think on 10 or 12 successive nights. Right. So she never sang in in opera and very little in operetta after that and concentrated on, on um, plays. But uh, no, Federici is commemorated. It's still in the... There's uh, a bar there, isn't in there? In the bar, the yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I suspected the ghost would have had to have perhaps passed away on, on site. <laughs> so yeah, oh, that's solved that yeah, yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. So were you, uh, did you grow up in Melbourne? Were you born in Melbourne? No, I was born in London. Right. And, uh, but I grew up in Melbourne. Right. Yeah. So um, mm. what brought mum and dad out to Australia? Well, my mother was Australian. Oh, okay, right. Uh, and dad was born in the Netherlands and grew up in England. And uh, as soon as war broke out, they decided the best thing to do is <laughs> the family tradition to get out of trouble as soon as possible was to come back to Australia. That Dad had met my mother when he had come out here previously as a musician and uh, they got married in, in London and uh, I went back to London with them in 1948, first of the trips I made back to London, yeah. Did you um, have any collections as a child? Did, was there anything that you collected that was to do with the performing arts or a stamp collection? It's funny you, you ask that, Peter, because my father was a philatelist. He loved stamp collecting. And he was like a senior member of the stamp collecting fraternity. And he tried to interest me in stamps. And... Um, um, the stamps he collected were what were called imperforates of the British Empire. <laughs> they were the sort of stamps that were issued before uh, they uh, introduced perforations. Right, okay. You, you would buy a sheet of these stamps and you'd cut, it, cut them up to use them and paste and you'd, them on. You'd have to paste them on with yeah. glue, I guess, yeah. yes. And they, to me, they were the dullest, most uh, ugliest little bits of paper you could imagine and I didn't want anything to do with them at all but I was did pick up dad's interest in printing he developed a great knowledge of printing through his stamp collecting and I then became interested in the printing and in the printing of theatre programs so I started collecting every program from every show I saw and we had a little circle of friends who used to also go to theatre and saw shows that I hadn't seen and they would hand the program on to me. So this started to build up. And then one dear lady 
passed away and she had told her her uh, heirs that her program collection should go to Frank. And um, it did, and there were these beautiful programs from the 20s and the 30s and with lovely coloured covers because of the era I'm, I'm talking about when I started collecting was like the war, uh, post-war, where uh, printing was fairly basic. Yes. Uh, usually like one-colour programmes and uh, on cheap paper. But these were beautiful. I thought, well, this is nice. So I started collecting backwards as well as contemporary stuff. And I've got a huge collection now. And of course you went on to, to be the star of many a theatre program as well with oh. your with your uh, biography of the of the show or the performers within it, giving a bit of a historical perspective to uh, any big commercial musical that mm. you might might have seen. That happened when I was at the Arts Centre and there was... Uh, the Arts Centre pro- co-produced a... Was it the, the summer musicals that they did? I can't remember whether it was a summer musical or not, but it was HMS Pinafore. And that had With Paul Eddington, was the, it? Yeah, Eddington yeah. one. And that had particular resonance for Australia because Williamson, J.C. Williamson, his theatrical empire was built on the success of his production of HMS Pinafore in the Gilbert and Sullivan repertoire. So I was asked would I write notes for that program, which I did. And it sort of rolled on from there. I think I've written program notes for something like 150, 200 different shows. And the funny thing is, I get asked now, can we reuse your notes? And so I I have to go back and update them occasionally. And uh, I did the production company notes for years and years, and now they're recycling some of their shows and recycling my notes. Well, the terrific historical documents, um, vital historical documents. It it um, it became a bit of a sort of tradition that Frank will do the notes, mainly for musicals, but I've done others as well, and for some concerts and um, CD inserts and things like that. But I love doing them, and I love the research, and I love bringing out the Australian connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is so, which used to be so often ignored or forgotten. Well, I, I hope they got you a seat at the performance. <laughs> oh, usually, <laughs> usually. I'm, I enjoy writing, and one of my first jobs was in advertising, or some of my first jobs were in advertising, where I used to write advertising copy and also write material for house magazines for different companies. And so I, I loved the whole writing thing. And then there was an organisation down here called the National Theatre, and that uh, was being run by John Carger, who's well known as an ABC broadcaster, but he was the administrator of the National Theatre down here, which is a school of drama, a school of uh, dance, and originally a school of opera operating out of the old Victory Theatre, National Theatre now in St Kilda. And John uh, rang me one day and said, look, I've got a room full of all the historic records of the National Theatre that go right back to when it was founded in 1935. He said, I want to get rid of them. Will you take them for the Performing Arts Museum in Melbourne? 
So I said, yes, love to. One of the last things John did before he retired was to say he would love to have that material used as a uh, basis for a story, for a book about the history of the National Theatre Movement. And um, about that time I was thinking of retiring from the Arts Centre and I had a visit from um, a rather harassed lady who had been appointed head of what was called um, the Victoria Press. The Victoria Press was an attempt to commercialise the government department in Victoria that printed Hansard. And they wanted, they had all this equipment, they had editors and they had typesetters, the whole thing, and it was not being fully used, so they were, they were told, see if you can put it on a commercial basis. We suggested a, a book to, um, to commemorate, I can't remember what anniversary it was of the Beatles visit, because we had a fantastic archive on the Beatles. And that was, we put that together, and it was called a special magic or something, and it was a great success. And they got patted on the back, and the next thing, you know, what can we do next? So I thought to myself, well, there's this National Theatre book. And uh, I suggested that to them. And I think if I'd have suggested reprinting the 1893 telephone directory, they would have jumped at it. But they said, yes, well, we would love to do that. So I went ahead and wrote, and uh, put, we put together a really sort of useful little book about the uh, history of the National Theatre. Well, it gave me a purpose for in life after having left the Arts Centre. And extraordinarily, Peter, I don't know how it's happened, but I've never had to sort of really hawk a manuscript around ever since. Uh, people sort of come to me and say, can you do a book on this? Can you do a book on that? So, uh, well, that, then, tapping into that vast knowledge and passion that you have, I mean, I have to, I first encountered you um, and the vast knowledge that you impart on all of us through Clive Stark's ABC Sunday morning program. I used to tune in every week and, and I garnered a lot of knowledge from that, so I have to thank you for that. <laughs> but um, you, you were then uh, at the Victorian Arts Centre Performing Arts Museum. Uh, let's talk about the Arts Centre. Did the museum, uh, was that founded at the same time as the Arts Centre or did it come along a little bit later? It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story uh, and it goes back to Clive Stark, as you mentioned. Uh, he had this arts program on a, on a Sunday morning and he had as a guest one morning uh, a lady called Viola Tate. Lady Tate. She was the widow of Sir Frank Tate, who had been the managing director of J.C. Williamson's, and she was passionately interested in theatre history. And during this interview with um, Clive Stark, she said she would love to see a theatre museum in Melbourne. She said, it's all this wonderful J.C. Williamson material sitting in storerooms. It all needs to be available for research and display. If only there was somewhere where it could go. So there's nothing at all that existed to nothing at all. destroy our history. And um, she had a she had written 
a very important book on Australian theatre history called A Family of Brothers, about how the Tate brothers, including her late husband, had virtually dominated live theatre in Australia for decades. And um, somehow or other, she must have talked to George Fairfax, who was the project officer for the development of an arts centre here in Melbourne. He'd been overseas and with a man called Bill Akers, who was a um, production manager and uh, a great mover and shaker in the arts world. He'd grown up as a... Uh, he was originally a dancer and then he grew up in the Borovansky ballet years and so on. And they went overseas looking for ideas for art centres and they saw that some of the great art centres overseas had material on display in their foyers and so on. And George had this thing, he didn't want his foyers, to quote him, full of dead people's things. <laughs> he, he saw a place for a special gallery, as it were, devoted to displaying memorabilia from the past. And so the idea of a performing arts museum was developed and they appointed a committee to advise on it. And Lady Tate was on that committee. And so when it became apparent that the government agreed to uh, this being part of the Arts Centre, um, they got, it was, I can't remember the term, but it was like, it was funded as a special, a special item in the Arts Centre's budget. It, it was, but it meant that if the Arts Centre went down the drain, the museum was still... It would be preserved. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. It had its own budget, yeah, yeah. which was a very, very good thing. And That's a very forward-thinking government of the yeah, time yeah, to, to, yeah. to allow that, yeah. This little committee organised a display to sort of launch the concept, and it was in the, in the foyer of the National Gallery here in Melbourne, and one of the highlights was a costume that had belonged to Dame Nellie Melba. And uh, Lady Tate knew Melba's granddaughter who lent this costume. And they went up to Coombe Cottage to collect it, uh, she and um, Bill Akers. Lady T um, uh, Melba's granddaughter, Lady Vesty, had lent costumes to the Sydney Opera House uh, or a display up there. And <clears throat> she had a great deal of trouble getting them back. So she went up to Sydney and said, I want my grandmother's costumes back, please. And they just sort of bundled them in a box and said, here you are. And she was absolutely disgusted. Yeah. Now, Bill Akers, having grown up in the ballet world, knew how to treat costumes, and he took a special box up to Coombe Cottage. He didn't know anything about this background. So there's this uh, cloak that Melba had worn in Lohengrin. It's this magnificent thing. And uh, he folded it. He had tissue paper and he folded it so beautifully. Lady Vesty was so impressed. And she said, uh, I want to think about it a bit, but why don't you take the whole collection? So eventually that entire wardrobe came down for preservation at the Arts Centre. And that was the first major gift to the, uh, to the emerging museum 
And the next thing that happened was that Lady Tate used her influence to get all the Williamson archives in Melbourne uh, across to the Arts Centre for preservation. And then they decided they'd better put on some staff to look after this material. So they put a tiny little advertisement in the age for a curator for an arts, uh, uh, performing arts museum. And I saw this and I was sort of between books and... <laughs> were, you, were you in advertising at the time? No, 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 no. no, no. I, I'd had a couple of other subsequent careers. Right. And um, I saw this little ad and I thought, that sounds interesting. And then I thought, oh no, forget it. And um, a friend said, no, come for it, go and see what happens. So I, uh, I applied. And I had absolutely no qualifications in running a museum, uh, but which in a funny way was perhaps a bit of an advantage because I went for the first interview, it was like a panel interview with um, George Fairfax and his 2IC and Eric Westbrook, who was head of the National Gallery, went quite well. And as I was being shown out, George's two IC said, "Oh, that was that was quite a good, uh, quite a good interview." He said, uh, "One thing I meant to ask you." He said, uh, "Something about somebody mentioned something about a murder in a Melbourne theatre." He said, "Do you know anything about that?" I said, it "Started to burble on. It was called the Greer Tragedy, and it was in the old Academy of Music in Bourke Street. Jealous husband, the whole thing." I'd sort of burbled this. Oh, yes, that'd be it. Oh, thanks very much. We'll let you know. And then I was called back for a second interview. And what I didn't realise, Peter, was that they asked that question of every applicant, and I was the only one that knew. As a, as a test, just yeah. to see how vast the, uh, yeah, the yeah. knowledge was. Oh, brilliant. So I, I came back for the second interview, and at the end of that interview, this guy... Who I see said, You did very well. He said, um, We'll let you know as soon as we can. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask you, he said, The public speaking, does that any problems for you? And I said, No, no, that'd be fine. <laughs> so I walked home and I thought to myself, Christ. One thing that I was absolutely totally scared of was public speaking. Well, you talk about being a shy kid. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that yeah, has followed all, you all through part of it. your young adulthood. So yeah. I thought, well, when I get home, I better phone him and say, look, just cross me off the list. Instead, the phone rang as soon as I got in the door. I answered it, it was Martin. He said, um, I've got some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, you know, what the... <laughs> give me the bad news first. And he said, well, he said... Uh, it's between you and another person. He said, it's come down to that. And I said, oh, he said, now do you want the good news? And I said, yes. He said, well, this person can't start until for, for the next three months. If you can hold off till then, we'll have enough money left in the budget to pay both of you if you can work together. So I said, oh, that sounds very good. <laughs> And it turned out this guy had been a uh, school teacher. And I thought, well, there's the public speaking taken care of. He can do all that. And it turned out that we got on very well. Martin took us both to lunch, and it's, it was like we'd been friends for years. 
And so Ron was the first director and I was the first curator. And uh, we got on really well right from the start. Looking back on it, it was George Fairfax cast the staff for the Art Centre like he was going to cast a play. It didn't matter whether you had any qualifications, formal qualifications or not. If you thought, Peter, no, you could do that. You could look after that part. And uh, that um, Mary that we saw this morning, she could, she'd be good in that. She'd worked with Peter and, and it, it worked. Very clever, yeah. Yeah, it was terrific. And the excitement and the dedication to get that place built and open because it was still just holes in the ground at that stage. The whole concept of the museum, it was was so vague uh, that we were given the privilege to create it as we wanted it to be. We weren't given a project and said run it. The whole thing was our creation and it worked and we got the place open, up and running and then poor old Ron had a, a heart attack and virtually died on the job. Right. I was in um, I was in Sydney at the time, and Martin rang me and told me, and uh, he said you better come back to Melbourne as soon as you can. So I did, and again it was George. There was sort of I don't think there was any formal advertising for a replacement. I was just... You'd have got it. Yeah, shoved it and frankled there, there. And that's how all that happened. <clears throat> but it was it was through that that I started broadcasting because we put together a spectacular exhibition on the history of radio. That was the first exhibition? For the no, that wasn't. No? The first one was Melba, right. uh, which was a beautiful exhibition designed by Anne Fraser who was a well-known Melbourne designer, and I learned a lesson from that. I um, And uh, she sort of summed me up from the start, and I was sort of making what I thought were helpful suggestions about, you know, what the, she said, you'd, you'd like to be designing this yourself, wouldn't you? <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, that, that's a pretty good hint, just shut up, hold your, hold your tongue and let... People do what they know how to do. But that was the first exhibition. The second major one was called Burke Street on Saturday night, which celebrated the old days of Burke Street when virtually all Melbourne's live entertainment was centred in and around Burke Street. We developed this concept of having four major exhibitions a year and uh, four smaller ones. So that there would, even when we were changing the major ones over, there'd be a smaller one to see if you visited the museum. And so that meant we were mounting eight exhibitions a year, which was a hell of a lot. And this was an exhibition space within the art centre? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the back of what was then a concert hall, the Haber Hall. It was even so vague in the early days, but I remember <coughs> walking with Ron and George around the place. Would this work for an exhibition? Anyway, the the place we were given was really a very difficult space to work with, but we devised a way of working around the columns and the awkward shape. And it was, looking back on it, back in about 1980, it was all 
the equipment and so on was all fairly unsophisticated and we wanted lighting effects, we wanted sound effects and so on. And I can remember a almost a schoolboy coming in um, and he had a couple of ideas of how he could construct a tape deck that would give us the sound and would somehow trigger the lights. We were using cassette tapes, that's how primitive it all was, you know. Because that would be an essential part of the exhibition to create some atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he came up with this sort of Heath Robinson thing, and he was brilliant, and if anything went wrong, he'd be there in a flash, uh, and he would fix it, and he would slowly... Technical things improved, he'd updated and updated... And that guy is now running the Lyric Theatre and the um, Capitol Theatre in Sydney. It's Stephen Found. Oh, wow. And that's how he got his start. Yeah, yeah. And we were able to sort of trigger quite a lot of careers through people working with us in the, in the museum. And we pioneered a lot of display techniques that are sort of taken for granted now. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I still get people saying, you know, I got turned on by the, to, to the performing arts by seeing such and such an, an exhibition. Well, did it take long to um, capture the public's imagination and, and, and get them along to the exhibitions? The hard thing was to get them to get noticed because we were in a fairly tucked away position. It wasn't it wasn't ideal from an access point of view, but the word of mouth was very important. And at the drop of a hat, I used to get on air and talk about what we were doing and so on. And it was the radio exhibition that we did that the publicity manager of the art centre arranged for me to go into. Clive Stark's program. No, sorry, not Clive Stark. There was a guy called um, um, John Cook who had the evening program on ABC local radio. And he said, take a few tapes in of old radio programs and talk about them. And it was supposed to be a 20-minute spot. (laughs) And John was absolutely captivated by it. And it turned out... uh, I was on air for the whole hour, and it was being produced by a wonderful man called Peter Jefferson. And Peter had been a news producer. News and current affairs was his lifeblood. And he'd done something he shouldn't have done, and he'd been banished to do John Cook's program as a punishment for a month or so. And as I was leaving, he said, he said, oh, that was, that was quite good. He said, uh, would you have enough for another program next week? So I said, oh, yeah, of course. So I went in and did it again the following week. And then he said, well, what about next week? Was he have enough for that? And so I went in. And while he was producing it, I went in every week. And he'd always ask me, have you got enough stuff for next week? He never could really grasp what this whole sort of nostalgia thing was. It wasn't current affairs. And then poor old John blotted his copybook. He got taken off air. And there was a big reshuffle, and I got switched to the Sunday mornings with Clive Stark. 
and that was became an, almost a um, uh, part of the furniture at 774. How long did you do that for? Uh, I think 13, 15 years. Wow. A long time. And um, Clive was wonderful to work with, and we developed, you know, quite a close friendship. And um, the, that program was, <clears throat> if the football was on, it was half an hour, and if the, the no football, it was an hour. And uh, I used to, the programs I liked best were the ones where we had in-studio guests. And uh, <clears throat> sometimes they took off and... Very occasionally they didn't, but we broke a few barriers with that. And I remember um, Lady Vesti, who I mentioned before, Melville's granddaughter, she uh, had written a book about her mother, her grandmother, and she asked me to launch it up at the Athenaeum Theatre in Lilydale. So I very, very brazenly said, look, I would be privileged to do that but on one condition. She said, what's that? I said, you would be my guest on the radio program. And, I mean, she was terribly shy lady, much shyer than I'd ever been. <laughs> and it, she said, look, I wouldn't do it for anybody else, I'd do it for you. So I launched the book, and she came down to do the Sunday morning live. In the, and you think she was going to have a all the teeth extracted on it. She sat there and Melba's recordings had recently been cleaned up digitally and sounding better than they'd ever sounded before. And she had the headphones on sitting like this. And as soon as we played the first track, her face changed and she was in awe She'd never heard her grandmother sing like really? that before. Wow. And she started to unwind. And it was just magic, some absolute magic seeing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we had some funny some funny guests as well. There was one extraordinary lady, and I can't remember her name, and probably better I don't, who developed an act imitating Mae West. Uh, she was appearing at a cabaret here in Melbourne. And... They contacted me and said, you know, would you like to have her as a guest? Because she knows all about Mae West and she's very, very good. I said, yeah, that sounds just the sort of thing we can build a program on. Then the publicist said, do you want her to be as herself or do you want her to be as Mae West? I said, look, it's entirely up to her. If she wants to do the voice, it's like if you have Barry Humphreys, (laughs) do you want Edna Edna or Barry? And... um, I said, it's entirely up to her. And I had some Mae West tracks ready and all that. I always found, Peter, that if we had a guest, and they, the earlier they got to the studio, the more nervous they were. Right. Uh, I mean, we've had, I had Robin Archer as a guest once, and she arrived probably 20 seconds before she was due to go on air, and she was fine. I got to the uh, studio for this Mae West lady, man at the door said to me, go and have a look in the calf, you won't believe what's there. And there she was, dressed as Mae West, West, sitting there having a cup of tea. She looked wonderful. And we got her on air, and she was extraordinary. And people 
couldn't believe they weren't listening to an old interview that I'd somehow... Uh, so, so you interviewed her yeah, as Mae West, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and she was, she was absolutely delightful. Well, that went along to the show uh, a couple of nights later and on stage she was dreadful. Oh, really? She was wow. totally different. Yeah. And it's just, there was a bit of a lesson in all that. Yeah. You know? yeah. But those nostalgia shows, uh, uh, people still remember them with a lot of affection. And, um, I particularly remember Clive because he was so good to work with. Yeah. 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 It was a great show. Yeah. Um, you talk about Melba's granddaughter willingly donating her grandmother's costumes. Mm. Did you have to go searching for pieces to be donated or did it quickly word get around that this was the place that I can safely leave? Yeah, I think that's that's what happened, Peter. Part of it was that we had a very, very small acquisitions budget and it was only uh, at the last resort that we actually had to buy things. Uh, mainly, mainly they were donated and the uh, collection is absolutely huge now, and it's a great testament to the generosity of people and the trust they had that things would be properly looked after. Well, you've got everything. Barry Humphreys has donated Edna costumes, and Kylie Minogue has donated yeah. stuff. And, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I was actually in in um, in Canberra, and I took a call from a gentleman. He said, "Oh." My name's Minogue. He said, my daughter's a singer. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how the Minogue thing started. Fantastic. Yeah, it it really is. Um, But the the Humphreys thing too, that, that without denigrating Barry's generosity, he had a substantial storage bill for some costumes that were... That he hadn't needed for some time that were in Sydney and right. uh, it seemed I think initially a good way to solve the storage problem yeah. and um, that, since then he donated stacks and stacks of costumes and memorabilia including some wonderful uh, recordings he used to he may still for all I know used to have his shows re- recorded professionally and uh, so he could listen and analyse what he'd done and the audience reaction. And on those, you you could hear him warming up before he went on stage. He'd be in the way, oh, we're going to get the buggers, I'm going to get that plane. And he'd put on the different voices and suck himself into going to grab that wow. audience. That's precious knowledge. Yeah. It? That's great. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. What about you and your collection? Uh, What's your prized uh, theatrical memorabilia that, that you actually own? Because I look around this magnificent home of yours and there's costume <laughs> designs all over the walls. Yeah. I see one that, that I think that's Jill Perriman and Hello Dolly. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, there's South Pacific there, Bloody Mary. Yeah. I don't. Or is there too many to choose from? I think there are probably too many to choose from. That's a very odd question. I've never really thought about it. I never really, I think, had a had a favourite piece. But I, I just thought you might have had Noel Coward's pen or <laughs> I've or got a little, a little Melba's gargle glass. I've got a little painting by Noel Coward. All right, yeah, uh, yeah. which I treasure. Yeah, and I've got another painting by um, uh, 
Borovansky of his home. Wow. I love those. But uh, no, I don't know. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, the costume designs all around the wall, etc. They're gifts from the designers, obviously, or the producers, or no, or some of them are. Louis Cahan was very generous to me. I've got I've got quite a number of his and Bill Constable. Um, Bill designed most of the Borovansky ballets and a lot of films in Britain that have since become cult uh, classics. Uh, he gave me uh, in the uh, sunroom their beautiful design for an old card ballet called London Morning that he did, and um, uh, he was a he was a total character, Bill Constable, and sort of very lovable larrikin, you know, great and a great designer. But um, um, the funny thing about that. London Morning design was that uh, I I knew about the the uh, <clears throat> Noel Cards writing this score, uh, and it was issued on a ten-inch microgroove record with Bill's set design reproduced on the cover, oh, wow. and Bill was over here. One one day, and I said, "Look where I put your uh, uh, design." He's looking at it, and I thought, I, "I said to you, of course, you know it's on the recording the cover of the record." He said, "No." So I draped it out and showed him. Oh, he said, "I never got my permission." He said, "I'll sue the lot of them." <laughs> and I don't know whether he ever did or not. The back royalties. But yeah, that it's a, it's a stunning design. The, the thing with the costume designs, I don't know what the market's like now, but when I first started, you could get costume designs for almost peanuts. There was just one guy in Sydney that specialised in them, but um, the, they didn't sort of reach the market. They Designers kept them. Yes. With the set designs always seemed to stay with the companies, and the costume designs was stayed with the designer. It's a, whether that's still the case or not, I don't know. But at one stage, we had an exhibition about costume design at the Performing Arts Museum, and I had the idea of asking Melbourne designers to uh, give us a selection of their designs if they wanted to sell them. So we had them on display in the foyer, and probably about 60 or 70 beautiful designs and they weren't expensive but people didn't buy them really no no oh. I don't think there's a there's much of a market for them because they are uh, quite unique works of art yeah. aren't they yeah yeah the, yeah the detail in some of them and the the, the um, exhibition of character yeah. yeah one of my most exciting experiences was working with Graham Murphy yeah when he did the Tivoli Ballet, and I, I was historical advisor on that, it was great. And um, Christian Fredrickson, oh, wow. did, yeah. he designed yeah. that ballet, beautifully designed, and uh, Graham and he gave me four of the designs from that, which I treasure. But um, no, the whole costume design thing, it's really, really interesting, and 
the art of transferring something like that to to something you wear. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's extraordinary, um, and some of the designs are so just conceptual without much detail. You wonder how they get translated to to the uh, to the physical. And we, we talked earlier about the, the ghosts of the theatre which mm. exist in there and you can feel the, the performers of the past that have, that, that have been there. But these costume designs often drawn with a, a similar image to the actor that, that's going to wear the costume. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly sort of reek of ghosts as well, don't they? Yeah. As well as, yeah. you know, finding an old costume that somebody wore. I mean, you talk about the Melbourne costume. Mm. is extraordinary. It's that not six degrees of separation, it's sort of, you know, I'm actually touching a garment that the great Melbourne wore. Well, I, I think you could still go to Costume Hire, a Costume Hire house here in Melbourne, and hire costumes from the old Williamson collection that have got names like Perriman and Hayes and uh, stuck inside the, the neck, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they're still in use, but... Uh, yeah, there is a... I think the other problem with the actual costumes is that a lot of them are so bulky. Yes. They take so much space to store and uh, they're a real challenge for uh, preservation. But well, hopefully there's a bit of um, longevity about them also because they were built to sort of play eight performances a week, mm. often for... you. Know, Think about that original My Fair Lady, mm. three years or so in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. the detail is extraordinary. Um, we talked earlier about the National Theatre book, um, story of Gertrude Johnson <coughs> and the National Theatre. Uh, you've written a number of books. How, how long does a book take you to write? Because there must be a lot of, you know, merging yourself in all of that research and contemplation. And yeah, it's 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 a, it's a, everyone's a journey and an adventure, and it to me. The whole exploring history has changed so radically. When I started, there was virtually no internet. Yes. And now, I reckon in future, in future, you'd be able to tell if a book was researched before Trove and the internet or after, because it's open so much, so readily, uh, and it's all there. The, touch of a keypad, you can read a review from 1908 or something like that and it's it's changed the whole business of research and I just love I love the digging and I love the um, finding the little <coughs> odd asides the little things that uh, perhaps had seemed unimportant but with the passage of time you can Give them some context. You're like an archaeologist, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, find yeah, those little diamonds. That uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it feeds into my uh, knowledge and love of printing too. I mean, I can you could show me two programs side by side, and I could tell you that's the Melbourne one and that's the Sydney one just by looking at the, the font, the printing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, the other thing, which is in theatre history. I find fascinating are the advertisements in the programs. Not so much now, um, but in in earlier days, you could tell what the audience was like f 
from the products being advertised in the program. Uh, and, for instance, the Tivoli ones would have ads for uh, money lenders and bars and billiard saloons, whereas the uh, Williamson ones might have ads for uh, expensive cars or uh, um, uh, smart furnishings or um, fashions, you know. They were appealing to different audiences. And uh, I, I just find that... The, well, they're great historical and social, cultural mm. documents. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah, tell us a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the other thing which, which I find really extraordinary looking at programs now and compared to programs then, if you look at a program from the 19... even the 1950s, uh, it'll have um, produced by, meaning directed by, uh, it'll have... Um, Scenery, scenery by, because the uh, the um, scenic artist was the designer. It wasn't two people. And it would probably have uh, who made the costumes, uh, and very little else. Now you look in the back of a program. There's an army of names yes. and jobs and positions, and it is quite extraordinary. You think, God, did all those people? have to be employed to get this thing on the stage. I just find it mind-boggling. Well, that's right. It does yeah. give you an indication of how many in the village it takes to yeah. put on a show. Yeah, yeah. 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 But when, I just assumed that in the 19, in the earlier years, it didn't need that many people. I mean, I suppose the productions were nowhere near as sophisticated as they are now, but it's... Uh, now you've got all those people that deal with marketing, I suppose, and, yeah. and social media. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. And in the case of the subsidised companies raising the money. They all need to be acknowledged. Yeah, I know. So your book on the Regent Theatre at the moment, that's that's going along well? Not the Regent, no, no. I beg your pardon, Her Majesty's. Her Majesty's, yeah. yeah, Royal Theatre, yeah. Yes, it is. It's it's. Um, uh, it was commissioned by Mike Walsh. I don't think he knew what he was letting himself or me in for. Because Mike owns the theatre. He owns yeah. the theatre, and he had he rescued it. Really, mm. it was due to be redeveloped as offices or a car park. Uh, the previous owners had discovered a way to make it pay uh, with a skeleton staff of three and a um, minimum of six weeks bookings a year. So it was winding uh, Yeah, yeah. And it was... Uh, they, they spent virtually nothing on um, technical maintenance. And it got to the stage where the fly tower was unsafe. It couldn't take a big show. And uh, it, Mike um, really... I don't know whether Mike really realised what he was taking on, uh, but take it on he did, and uh, thank goodness because it's, it's as he said, it's better than it ever was before. Mm. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful theatre. Virtually without a an archive, it didn't have a collection to represent the uh, history of the plays, and um, Mark Mike decided. It needed its own, need to preserve its own history. And I went with him up to the uh, Royal Historical Society, who were uh, sorting out 
stuff they didn't want, including a lot of theatre programs. And he snapped up um, the Madge ones, and that formed the basis. There were only about 40 of them, formed the basis of the what's now a major archive within the building, looked after by a wonderful lady called Mary Murphy. And uh, uh, it has expanded dramatically. And um, it's now a very, very valuable resource. Again, 99% of it is donated by people that have appeared at the theatre or been patrons for years and so on. And the princess has got a similar archive. It's great. Well, it's fantastic. Well, well, let me finish with a question, which is probably quite obvious. But why is it important to preserve our entertainment history? Why is it important to me? I, I mean, <laughs> it's important. For, it's important to preserve all our history, I suppose. But yeah. there's something. I think entertainment says so much about us as a people. Uh, that by preserving the history of entertainment, you're preserving a, a substantial slice of our own social history. And uh, you can see so many changes in perspective and attitude over the years reflected in entertainment and what people went to see and what how they reacted to it. I love all that. And the, the physical, the physical remnants of it, all the programs, the costumes, the designs, even the play scripts and so on, they tell you so much that um, uh, I just treasure all that and I just wanted people to uh, feed off it and enjoy it. I suppose I haven't put that at all well. But no, no, I think that's perfect. It, it's yeah. just something that I, is inherent in me. I've always, I've always been as interested in the past as I am in the future, and uh, to, I've been around such a long time. I've seen so many changes, and to realise how things have evolved, uh, and the things that have stayed the same. Uh, to me, that that's that's so so much a, a reward, and I just love the dedication of people in the performing arts. And the one thing that's come out of the Majesty's book is the the number of sad stories. There are performers that have fallen by the wayside, died too early, died in obscurity, uh, uh, come to unfortunate ends, and if if what I do can in some way compensate for the dramas of their lives, then I think that's worthwhile. And the other thing is if, if the little stories, the little asides, all that encourages somebody to think, oh, I'm going to find a bit more about that. Go person. down that rabbit hole of investigation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, that, that person by doing that can get as much of a thrill as I do by doing the initial uh, then I think that's well worth the effort. Thank goodness for people like Frank Van Stratton who've helped to preserve our uh, rich theatre heritage. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through our hosting platform, Wooshka. That's W-H-O-O-S-H-K-A-A. 
And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. I'm Peter Ryers, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.